الحمد لله رب العالمين له الحمد الحسن والثناء الجميل وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له وأشهد أن سيدنا ونبينا محمد صلى الله عليه وعلى آله وأصحابه والتابعين لهم بإحسان إلى يوم الدين أما بعد Inshallah ta'ala we're going to carry on the explanation of the kitab Safinatul Najah Last week we studied the nawaqid of al-wudu the nullifiers and the things that nullify the wudu Today inshallah ta'ala we're going to go into what is it that is haram, I and mean, what is haram from a person when it comes to, I mean, what is haram from an individual after they have come with hadath. Once hadath has happened to you, uh, what is it uh, that is prohibited from you? What can't you do? That's what we're going to study, inshallah, ta'ala in today's class. So note this down, al-kareem, uh, brothers and sisters. Note this down, it's important that you remember this because it will help you a lot. The hadith is two types. Okay? The hadith, it is two types. The first type of hadith is the first type of hadith is what is necessary for you to do when it happens to you? So that's the first type of hadith. What must you do when the hadith happens to you? That's the first type. Okay? And the second type is... What... Are you not allowed to do? Shafi'iyah, they categorize the hadith into those two. The first one is, What must you do? And the second one is, What aren't you allowed to do? And this is important, that you know the difference. The first type which is, The common type that people know. The first one which is, what is necessary on you? I mean, what must you do is categorized into akbar and asghar. The first type is I'm taking time, inshallah ta'ala, in repeating this point because this will open so much doors for us, inshallah ta'ala, in the points to come later, inshallah ta'ala. According to the Shafi'iyah, they categorize the hadith. Hadith is impurity. They categorize it into two. The first one is, what must a person do? Okay? Or what does this hadith necessitate? That's the first type. The second one is, what are you not allowed to do? What are you prohibited from doing? Let's go back to the first one. The first one, which is what must you do? Um, what does the hadith necessitate from you? The Shafi'iyah categorized the first type into two types. They, call, they say it's Akbar and Asghar. Major and minor. Major and minor. The impurity, what it necessitates from you, or what you must do is either wudu, which is asghar, or ghusl, which is akbar, showering. I hope that, I hope that point is understood. Now I'm going to move on to the second type of hadith. The second type of hadith is what are you not allowed to do? And what must you not do? 
I mean, what are you prohibited from? This is divided into three according to the Shafi'iyah. They divide this one into three. Al-Azgar, minor. Al-Awsat, which is middle. And Al-Akbar, which is major. Which is major. Today, inshallah ta'ala, we're going to be taking the second type. Which is what? What does the uh, hadith prohibit from you? Which is the second type. Which we, within the second type, we divided into three, right? Al-Asghar, Wal-Awsat, Wal-Akbar. Shafi'iyah, that's what it is to them. What is Al-Akbar and Al-Awsat and uh, Al-Asghar? That's what today's class, inshallah ta'ala, is going to be. Asghar, again, is um, wudu. The akbar is ghusl. And the awsat is the one that you haven't heard of. The one that I haven't mentioned. The awsat, the shafi'iyah, they say it's khurujul mani. It's when the many comes from you. They put that in the awsat. Why did they put that in the awsat? Is what today's class is going to be. Why they divided that into three. And why is the asghar different to the awsat? Or why is even the awsat different to the akbar? Inshallah ta'ala, that is what today's class is, class is in. And I'm going to be in the start with that. What is it that you can't do? The author, rahimahullah, he mentioned four things that you're not allowed to do. The four things are as-salatu. You're not allowed to do as-salah. According to the Shafi'iyah, if a person is in a state of hadith, major or minor, it doesn't matter, you're not allowed to pray. You are not allowed to pray. Salah is prohibited from you. This is in Hadathul Asghar, and of course it's in Hadathul Akbar. So you're not allowed to pray. It prohibits you from prayer. It prohibits you from uh, establishing the Salah. What about if I did it out of forgetfulness? Yani I forgot. I didn't remember. And I did it out of forgetfulness. It still doesn't matter. You have to repeat that prayer again. The Salah was null and void. Yani this Salah is not Sahih. You have to repeat that salah. What about if I did it out of ignorance? I didn't know the ruling. Again, you still have to repeat the salah. As again, you still have to repeat the salah. Because you didn't pray anything. You're not a sinner. And there's nothing upon you because you were ignorant. But now that you've gained the knowledge and the understanding, you have to repeat that prayer. What is the evidence that you're not allowed to pray the salah if you're... Uh, in a state of impurity. The evidence the Shafi'iyah are using is the hadith narrated by Bukhari and Muslim in Hadith Abi Huraira, where the Prophet وسلم, he said, La Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he doesn't accept the prayer of a person who has fallen into hadith. Man ahdatha, anyone who has hadith. Hadith means uh, impurity. Hatta until he does wudu. Allah won't accept your prayer until you do wudu. That's important that you understand it. The second, um, by the way, the salahiyah, by the way, the salahiyah is referring to the obligatory prayer and also the voluntary prayer. يعني, there is no salah you can say, yeah, I, um, I, I prayed that without wudu. Even Salatul Janazah, even Witr, you have to. And the reason for that, they said, is because it has takbiratul ihram, this opening. Yani the opening, 
the Allahu Akbar that you do is what gives it the name of it being a salah. Some scholars then went back and they discussed what about the sujood tilawa Sujood tilawa the sujood of recitation of the Quran. I'm a sujood shukr. Scholars, they discussed that. Uh, do you have to have uh, tahara for that? What about if I done sujood tilawa and I am in a state of impurity? The scholars that said that the sujood tilawa, you do not need tahara for it, their argument is that it's not salah. And when they are asked, well, what do you mean it's not salah? Isn't, is uh, sujood not the greatest part of the uh, salah? And it's the greatest part of the salah. Or one of the greatest parts of the salah. A time when you're the most closest to Allah. The Shafi'iyah responded by saying, it doesn't have a takbiratul ihram. Yani the, the, the takbiratul ihram is the Allahu Akbar of the opening of the prayer. It doesn't have that. And because of that, it's not a prayer, they're saying. That's their argument. That's their argument. So they're consistent upon that. Okay. As-salah. The second one is wat-tawaf. The second thing you're not allowed to do is at-tawaf. Tawaf, you're not allowed to do tawaf. If you have hadath, if you have hadath, you can't do tawaf according to the Shafi'iyah. And their argument for that is the hadith uh, in which the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam he said, "At-tawafu bil salah." The circumambulation, the tawaf around the Kaaba is a prayer. Illa anna Allah abaha fihi al-kalam. The only difference is that Allah permitted and He allowed in the tawaf speech. You're allowed to talk. You can converse and talk to one another. Whereas the salah you can't. That's the difference the Prophet said. Other than that, it's the same. Yani intention is needed for the tawaf as it's needed for the salah. Tahara is needed for the salah. It's also needed for the, it's also needed for the tawaf. That's what they said. That is what the Shafi'iyah, the Shafi'iyah said. And that's their evidence. What tawaf? Here, the question here is the tawaf, there are those which are obligatory and they are a pillar of Hajj and Umrah, or it can be a, a sunnah and a nafila, a voluntary. Are they all the same? The tawaf around the Kaaba, are all of them, do they require tahara? Should you have Dahara um, for it? Shafi'iyah say Whether it's wajib Or whether it's sunnah It doesn't matter You have to have Dahara for it Because it's a prayer According to them What about if the person is ignorant? He didn't know the ruling And what about if the person forgot? They say it doesn't matter He has to repeat it he has to, has to repeat it. The third is, the third thing that you're not allowed to do is, Masul Mushaf. Masul Mushafi, touching the Mushaf. According to the Shafi'iyah, الجمهور, and it's the view of the overwhelming majority of the Imams and the scholars. And it's actually the view of the four madhabs that masul mushaf, touching the mushaf when you are in a state of impurity is not allowed. You're not allowed. What is it that I can't do? You can't touch it, they say. You're not allowed to grab the mushaf with your hand. No, you're not. What about... Touching it with 
other parts of my body, is only my hands. No, Shafi'i believe any part of your body, you're not allowed to touch it with it. There's another. You're not even allowed to touch it with your nail. They believe you can't. They even say you're not allowed to touch it through a veil. And you place a veil between you and the Mus'haf and then you try to grab it through it. Maybe you grab with a cloth. They say you're not allowed to. Here Ishkal came. Some of the scholars, they said, oh, this doesn't make sense then. Some of the scholars, they, they say, this doesn't make, doesn't make sense. Why? And I want people to open their minds for these points because these are things that come up. Some of the fuqaha shafi'iyya, they said, that if a man touches a woman, but between them there's a veil, a man touches a woman, but between them there is a veil, they said that this doesn't break the wudu. And remember we took before, according to the Shafi'iyah, that if a man touches a woman, it breaks her wudu. Okay, it breaks her wudu. We took that. Shafi'iyah mentioned that if it happens between a veil, it doesn't. So some scholars, they came back and they said, hold on. According to your opinion, you believe that the veil has something. You believe the veil has some weight. You see, you're, you're saying, you're arguing that if you touch a, mus, uh, if you touch a, a woman with a veil, the ruling changes because of that veil. Why can't the ruling change here as well? Okay? Why can't the ruling change here? Why... If I touch it with a veil, why, why, would it, why would it not change the ruling? The Shafi'iyah said, the illa for that, and the reason why that wasn't allowed, and the reason why this is not allowed, is different. And why? They said, the veil between the man and the woman shows and indicates, the reason why they're saying is, that the desire is taken out of the picture. The reason why a man can't touch a woman is because of shahwa, they said. Desires which will lead to zina. Whereas the mushaf, the reason why you're not allowed to touch it is because it's been honored and venerated, regardless of how you touch it. The Quran is an honored book, and you are not in that state. However, way you try to grab it, they're saying that the honoring of the Quran is still not being met. Whereas if a man touches a woman behind a veil, they said, the shahwa has been taken out. Ala kulli hal, the argument doesn't seem very strong. It doesn't seem strong on their side. It doesn't seem. And as you know, my view of this issue is different to what I'm quoting here. Okay, my view that I am inclined to, the statements of the scholars that I'm inclined to, is that a woman can touch the mushaf even if she's on a state of impurity, major or minor, it doesn't matter. But that's another discussion for another day, inshallah ta'ala. But in this situation, uh, the overwhelming majority of scholars and the Shafi'iyah is that you can't. And some scholars have even tried to transmit a ijma', yani consensus, that you're a woman who is on her major uh, impurity is not allowed to touch the Mus'haf. Some scholars, they transmitted ijma'. Okay, وَمَسُّ الْمُصْحَفِ Okay, she's not allowed to touch the Mus'haf. وَحَمْلُهُ And carrying the Mus'haf. Carrying the Mus'haf, she's not allowed. Okay. Why would the author mention حَمْلُ الْمُصْحَف when he said you can't touch the Mus'haf? So the scholars here, they said that this is just a, a bigger thing than what you mentioned before. Yani if you've said that you can't touch it, then carrying it for Minbabi Ola, without a doubt, it should be, uh, it should be uh, prohibited. And the evidence that they're using here, that the person can't touch the Mus'haf or carry the Mus'haf, is the statement of Allah, لا يمسه إلا المطهرون. That's the ayah that the Shafi'iyah are using. 
and the Jumhur. And also the hadith of Abdullah ibn Abi Bakr ibn Hazm, where the Prophet ﷺ, he said, no one should touch the Qur'an except a person who is tahir. Yani the only person who is allowed to touch the Qur'an, Allah the Prophet ﷺ say, is a person who is tahir. The hadith where it says, لا يمسوا إلا المطهرون That no one touches the mushaf except those who are pure. This is the ayah that the Shafi'iyah are using. That the only person who can touch the mushaf is a person who's in a state of state of state of tahara. That's the only person who's allowed to. Because Allah said, لا يمسوا, no one touches it إلا المطهرون. So the scholars they responded back to that. Some scholars. And they said that the ayah la yamasu illa al-mutahharun is not talking about the Qur'an. It's talking about what? It's talking about lawhul mahfuz. It's talking about the lawhul mahfuz. It's not actually talking about the Qur'an. That's the argument of some scholars. But what I really liked and amazed me was the response Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah gave. Ibn Taymiyyah said, The lawhul mahfuz, the lawhul mahfuz, the, uh, sorry, he said the ayah, of course, is talking about the lawhul mahfuz. Ibn Taymiyyah, he accepted that. But he said, if the lawhul mahfuz is not touched except by the people who are pure, then the Quran should be from Mimbabi Awla because it's the speech of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Ibn Taymiyyah is saying, if it's talking about lawhul mahfuz, then the Quran is more befitting for it not to be touched except to those who are pure and those which are in a state of tahara does that make sense and this brothers and sisters looking at books of fiqh and looking at how the scholars discuss these issues it really teaches you how to benefit from the quran and the sunnah how it's utilized and how the discussions amongst the scholars the way it goes it really strengthens and it actually builds your thinking process. Yani reading the books of fiqh and their discussions and the dialogues that's taking place between them and how they are responding to each other, it expands your mindset. It expands your thinking process. It really sharpens you in how to know what is for you and what is against you. When you can talk and you're allowed to speak for something that is yours or when you should withhold and you don't have a point at this moment. Yani these books will teach you. Like for example, if you look at Imam al-Shafi'i's discussions, his back and forths with Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani, it's actually documented. There's their discussion. Shafi'i, rahimahullah, and the student of Imam Abu Hanifa, Muhammad ibn Hassan al-Shaybani. Their discussion and their back and forth, if you actually read it, you're going to think to yourself, subhanAllah, the level of comprehension, their mindset, their deep observation, and how they critically, critically analyze each other, it just amazes you. It takes you back. SubhanAllah, it's amazing. So Shaykh al-Islam me that was the point that he brought rahimahullah forward. That is what he said. Now we're going to go into those four that we just mentioned. Those four are for the Hadathul Asghar, the minor impurity. Shafi'iyah are trying to use this for Hadathul Asghar, minor impurity. Yani you passed wind. You went to the toilet to do call of nature. Okay? These four, Salah, Tawaf, Masul Mus'haf, and Hamluhu is prohibited from you. Remember what we were saying before, that the Hadath is three types. The hadith is how many types? Three types. Asghar, Awsat, and Akbar. We're talking about the second type, which is what it prohibits you from doing. We've already done the Asghar now. The things that it prohibits you from, when you're in a minor impurity, what it prohibits you from is what? As-Salah. It prohibits you from At-Tawaf. It also prohibits you from Masul Mus'haf, and it also prohibits you from carrying the Mus'haf. Now we're going to go into the awsat, the middle. 
The middle is this one. It is Janaba. The first thing that the middle one prohibits you from is as-salah. Without a doubt, it prohibits you from salah. Meaning, if hadathul asghar prohibited you from salah, then hadathul awsad and akbar, salah is prohibited from you. Yani bring all the four that we mentioned again. The four that we mentioned for the asghar has to be in the awsad and it also has to be in the akbar. I hope this is understood by everyone, inshallah ta'ala. So salah, we've taken. Tawaf, we've taken. Masr mushaf we've taken. And the carrying of the mushaf, all three of them, if they are in the asgar, they have to be in the awsat, and they also have to be in the akbar. This is the additional thing that the awsat has over the asgar, which you're not allowed to do. Which is what? Which is al fil masjid. It is to remain in the masjid. The word Al-Lubthu, it means to remain in the masjid. You're not allowed to sit in the masjid. <laughs> if you're in the Hadath al-Awsat, which is Janaba, Janaba, you either, either had sexual intercourse or, number two, you had <coughs> sexual intercourse or you had fluid come from you or you had many many semen come from you even if it wasn't through sexual penetration just a thought or a wet dream this is janaba you're not allowed to stay in the masjid the evidence that they use for this is qawluhu ta'ala ya ayyuhalladhina amanu la taqrabu salata wa antum sukara hatta ta'lamu ma taquluna wa la junuban illa abiri sabil wa la junuban if you're in a state of janaba you're not allowed to come close to the masjid. And you're, sorry, you're not allowed to go inside the masjid. Unless you're crossing it through. means you're crossing through the Quran masjid. You're not allowed to sit and remain in the masjid. Okay. That's the evidence. So you're only allowed عبور السبيل, عبور المسجد, to cross through the masjid. You're not, you're not allowed to remain. question here is is this specific to the masjid or is the or is this for um, any place that people worship Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and is only specific to the masjid what about if there's a musallah what about if there's a musalla? The sc- sc- scholars who took this opinion, they said it's not talking about a musalla. And this ap- may apply to our situation right now, which is that a lot of us have been deprived from praying in the masajids and we're praying at home due to the coronavirus. We're praying at home. Some of us have taken a place within the household where we've designated it as a place of prayer. Which is something I recommend you all to do. Now that you're in the isolation, you're praying at home with family, if you've got many rooms, there should be one room that you specify. That room is the only, that's the room for the salah. And everybody comes and they pray there. And the reason why I say it's best to make a particular room it's because of the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ where the companion came to the Prophet and he said, Ya Rasulullah, come to my place and pray in a particular place for me. He was a blind man who couldn't come to the masjid. And so the Prophet ﷺ specifically made for him a place he could pray. That's the first reason why I encourage every one of you to take a place in the household now whilst you're isolated and to do inshallah ta'ala prayer in that place. The second reason why I encourage that is because it's, it's refreshing if that room is not the room where the people were sitting. Because a lot of the times when the people are sitting in one place and you all get up and you pray in the same place, it doesn't bring about much khushu. Whereas, 
if they got up and they went to another room and they were told this is the room we're all going to pray in, it brings back the idea and the, 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 the thing that they used to do, which is go to the masjid. And he go into the masjid. And uh, this is a point that Sheikh Muhammad ibn Salih al-Uthaymin pointed out. And what I really saw in this is that now a lot of people were consistent in going in the masjids. And they were consistent praying in the masjids. Now that the coronavirus outbreak has taken place, they've been isolated at home. And this momentum of going to the masjid, it shouldn't die out. And when the time, inshallah ta'ala, comes, and where we see the, uh, the uh, joy of going back to the house of Allah ta'ala, and praying in there, we should be used to it. Because that's what we were doing in our own households. We were going to other rooms and praying in there. And we were doing our best to keep that still alive within us. So that's important, inshallah ta'ala, that we keep in mind. But the point I want from there is now, that place in your house where you've specified for the salah, can a person who's in a state of janaba go there? That's a question, right? Or is that only specific to the masjid? Um, it's only specific to the masjid. Because they said, Ya iladina amanu la taqrabu salata wa antum sukara hatta ta'lamu ma taquluna wa la junuban illa abiri sabil. Some of the scholars, they said <laughs> that the ayah is speaking about a context. And the context here is what? Those of you who are drunk do not pray the salah whilst you are drunk. And do not come to the places where the salah is prayed. Unless you're crossing through it. Unless you're crossing through that place where it's prayed. They said that the ayah is talking about the salah that the sahabas were known to pray with the Prophet. ﷺ. They used to pray in the salah, in the masjid with the Prophet. <coughs> Good. Um, the second thing which you're not allowed to do, and the reason I'm saying the second thing you're not allowed to do is the second thing in addition to the asghar that you're not allowed to do is qiraatul Qur'an. You're not even allowed to recite the Qur'an, they're saying. Reciting the Qur'an is different from touching the mushaf. Yani you're not, if you're in a state of janaba, you're not even allowed to read it, they're saying. It can't be uttered by you. The question here is, um, what about if the person utters it in their mind? Yani they read it in their mind. Are they allowed? They're saying, yes, it's allowed. How is it allowed? They're saying, this is not called qira'ah. It it's not called recitation. Here's a point that I want to stand over, which is, some people, they pray salah. And those salah that they pray is duhr, asr. And Salatul Dhuhr and Asr, they have in common that they are known as Salah which are Sirriya. Yani you don't recite the Qur'an loud. So some people, they thought that because these Dhuhr and Asr are two prayers where I, I don't read loud, they don't even move their lips. So they stay in the Salah without moving their lips and they remain in that way. They just stand there. And when you ask them, well, I, didn't, I didn't see you read. They say, oh, it was Dhuhr. I don't have to read loud. But I, I didn't see your lips move. Oh, I was reading it in my mind. This, by the way, is not called recitation. It's not called qira'ah. Because remember, whether you read it loud or not, both of them are called qira'ah recitation. It's just that this qira'ah is low and this qira'ah is loud. Qira'ah, sirriya, and qira'ah, which is jahriya. So what we take from this is that your lips have to move regardless. And that's the argument here right now. So you all understand. The argument here is what? The Shafi'iyah are saying that you're not allowed to read the Qur'an in a state of janaba means your lips cannot move. You're not allowed to move your lips. If you read it in your mind, that's not considered a qira'ah. It's not considered a qira'ah. 
good. Shafi'iyah, inshallah ta'ala, write this down. The author didn't mention it. But the Shafi'iyah mentioned six reasons. I'm a sh- sorry, six conditions that you're not allowed to recite the Quran. Six conditions. The first one is, that the reciter has to reach age of puberty. Yani if a child reads it, kids, they may not be tahir, they may not, it doesn't matter. Or it could be somebody who's majnoon, a person who's uh, not mentally stable. That person, he might be in a state of janaba, ma'adalik, it's mukallaf. Mukallaf means a person who is aqil and baligh. The second is an yakuna ma utiya bihi yusamma Qur'anan. They're saying what he's reciting has to be Qur'an specifically. So, what leaves this discussion is what leaves this is if the person is reciting a dua, which is also a verse from the Quran, but he's not reading it as a Quran, he's reciting it as a dhikr, as a dua. So he says, for example, Rabbana la tuzikulubana ba'da id hadaytana wa hablana milladun karahma, innaka antal wahab, he says, for example. Now, this is an ayah in the Quran, but it's also a dua. Okay? So they said um, it has to be a Quran. The third one is, the Quran that he's reciting has to be a, a, a voluntary recitation. Yani if he's reading it because he's obligatory on, on reading it, then they say there's no problem. If it's no problem. Yani if a woman's going to forget her Quran, if a man's going to forget his Quran, and they have to read it. وَمَا إِلَى ذَلِكَ They say no problem. Number four. He, he has to pronounce it. And he has to say it. With his lips. Number five. He has to hear him himself. And he has to hear himself when he was reciting. So it's not just the moving of the lips, but it's also the recitation that's coming from his mouth. If he's hearing it, it's a recitation. It's not allowed, they're saying. And the sixth and final one is The sixth one, inshallah ta'ala, is Also, what has been brought to his attention and what has been given to him has to be a Qur'an. Sorry, the sixth, sixth one is أَنْ يَكُونَ مَا أَتَى بِهِ يُسَمَّ قُرْآنًا That which he came with must be a Qur'an. Yani he intended it to be a Qur'an. Okay? He had intended it to be a Qur'an. Inshallah ta'ala, we're now going to go into the next one, which is that which is prohibited from the Hadathul Akbar. The third type of Hadath. What is prohibited from them is the Akbar. The major one. What are the people who are in the state of Hadath Akbar is not allowed. Again, it's the Asghar and the Awsat is all in there. It's all in there. Plus, 
extra things. So, salah you're not allowed in the Hadith al-Akbar. Tawaf you're not allowed. Masul mushaf you're not allowed. Carrying the mushaf you're not allowed. Wallabtu fil masjid you're not allowed. Waqiraatul Quran you're not allowed. This is the additional that the Hadathul Akbar has, which is Wasawmu, you're not allowed to fast. Yani the Hadathul Akbar is only Hayd. It's only what? Hayd. It's menstruation. Additional to what we mentioned before is fasting. All fasting, you're not allowed to fast. Shafi'iyah, they believe that the fasting is, you're not allowed to fast. And their evidence for the fasting is the hadith in Sahih Muslim, in hadith Abi Sa'id in Al-Khudri, Bukhari and Muslim both narrated. That the Prophet ﷺ said, أَلَيْسَ إِذَا حَاضَتْ لَمْ تُصَلِّ وَلَمْ تَصُمْ فَذَلِكَ نُقْصَانُ دِينِهَا the Prophet ﷺ, he said, when she's in her menstruation, she doesn't pray nor does she fast. That's the evidence for that. وَالطَّلَاقُ Divorce. A man is not allowed to pro, he's not allowed to divorce his wife while she's on her menstruation. And also if she's on her postnatal bleeding. It's the same. The question here is that does that divorce happen or does it not happen? There's a difference of opinion amongst the scholars. And you're a sinner for, for, for divorcing your wife while she's on her menstruation. But the question here is does it happen? A lot of the scholars they say, ithmi, And this is the strongest opinion. It happens, it occurs with a sin. Yani the divorce happens, it occurs. But you're a sinner. You're a sinner. Why is it prohibited? The reason why it's prohibited is because, first of all, what's the evidence that it's prohibited? The evidence is, Awluhu Ta'ala, the statement of Allah, فَطَلِّقُوهُنَّ لِعِدَّتِهِنَّ Divorce them in their iddah. Yani divorce them when they're upon a state of tahara. Divorce them when they are in a state of State of Bahara. Ponder here and contemplate. Ponder with me here. Why is it prohibited for a man to divorce a woman when she's on her menstruation? What's the reason? They say the reason is because if he does that, he's going to lengthen her idda on her. And if a man divorces a woman while she's on her menstruation, she cannot count her tahara until another one comes. So she's going to end up um, staying in her idda longer and the sharia doesn't want that you're putting the woman through harm so it's not allowed and the evidence for that is the ayah that I mentioned also Abdullah ibn Umarin it was said he divorced his wife while she was on her menstruation. He divorced her while she was on her menstruation, Abdullah ibn Umar. And this was the time of the Prophet. So Umar went and he asked the Prophet regarding this. The Prophet he said, Murhu, command him, command him to take her back. So he divorced her. Abdullah Umar divorced his wife. The Prophet ﷺ said to him, take her back. When you take her back, let her remain with you. Until she purifies herself. And then she has her menstruation. Then you divorce her. Or if you want, you can keep her. It's your choice. But don't have sexual intercourse with her. At that purification. If she comes out of that menstruation, that purification, if you don't have sexual intercourse with her, 
she can consider that a tahara. So Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu ta'ala anhu took the Prophet's advice. The next one is وَمُرُورِ فِي الْمَسْجِدِ إِنْ خَافَتْ تَلْوِيثَهُ She's not allowed to cross the masjid. يعني the junub, he was allowed to cross the masjid. Like in the woman who's on a menstruation, he's saying, she's not allowed to cross through the masjid. If she fears that some of the blood might go into the masjid. If she's scared that she may uh, do that, then she's not allowed. That's what he's saying. That is not allowed. وَالِاسْتِمْنَاعُ مَا بَيْنَ السُرَّةِ وَالرُّكْبَةِ Also, the man is not allowed. He's prohibited. And the woman is who's on a hayd, she's prohibited from what? وَالِاسْتِمْنَاعُ To enjoy uh, or have um, sexual intercourse uh, while she's in that state. Yani, there's no sexual intercourse in which he's allowed to have with her. But if he wants to enjoy that which has been transmitted from the Prophet ﷺ was that if the woman's on her menstruation, <coughs> is that he used to place a cloth on the, his wife and he would cover between her knees to a navel, he would cover it. Sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. And he would uh, enjoy his wife. This is permissible. Yani between the knees and the navel, the man is not allowed to have contact in that area. They said because of the fact that the Prophet covered that area. Shafi'iyah here are being more, they're saying sexual intercourse is not just the issue. The man cannot touch the woman, even مثلاً, her thighs is prohibited. Because of the fact that the Prophet ﷺ covered that area. As a side point, if a person knows that um, doing what the Prophet ﷺ did, is going to throw them into having sexual intercourse with their spouse whilst they're on their menstruation, they are prohibited from doing this. And if a person doesn't have the ability to restrain himself, and he will end up having sexual intercourse with his wife while she's on her menstruation, okay, and it will lead to that, then this istimta is not allowed. It becomes prohibited from you. Because whatever will lead you to haram becomes haram. The same way, whatever uh, leads you to wajib, it becomes wajib. Okay. Now we're going to go into, inshallah ta'ala, faslun, asbabu tayammumi. The reasons for tayammum. The reasons for tayammum. When am I allowed to do a tayammum? When am I permitted to do a tayammum? Um, what does the word tayammum actually mean? The word tayammum in the Arabic language is to intend. The qasad, the intent is actually called tayammum. That's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala He says Do not intend evil <coughs> Allah used the word تَيَمَّمُ تَيَمَّمُ means what? Intend You're not allowed to intend evil But what does tayammum mean in the sharia In our religion Tayammum in the sharia is Taking the earth, <coughs> Alhamdulillah, 
It is to take the dust and the earth and place it on your face and on your hand with the intention of a tayammum. You're not using water. You don't have water to use. Or whatever the reason is, we're going to come to that. But water is absent. And what you're using is earth. That is called tayammum. Yani tayammum is a substitute. Okay? The asal is what? The asal is water. You need to use water. One way or, one way or another, you don't have the water, you use tayammum. You use what? A tayammum. Tayammum is a substitute. The author mentions, rahimahullah, that the reasons why you can do tayammum are three. Zakariya al-Ansari, he's Shaykh al-Islam in the Shafi'iyah. He's considered to be Shaykh al-Islam according to the Shafi'iyah. He mentions 21 reasons. <coughs> 21 reasons uh, in which you are allowed to do tayammum. But this book is very small, so we're just going to do these three, inshallah ta'ala. The first one is, you can't find water. The absence of water. Question. If you can't find water and you're a resident, or you can't find water and you're a traveler, is it the same? Or is there a difference? According to the Shafi'iyah, it's the same. The second one is illness. Before I move into the second one, what is the evidence that if you don't have water, you're allowed to do tayammum? The ayah, Bahirul ayah is the evidence, which is You couldn't find water, do tayammum. The ayah is clear. The second one is illness. The second one is what? Illness is a reason for you not to have to use water. And the evidence for that is the hadith of Jabir radiallahu anhu. Jabir said, we went out on a journey and a man from amongst us, um, he had a wound on his head. A rock hit him and he wounded his head. And then he had a wet dream. He then woke up in the morning and he asked the people around him. He said, look, my beloved brothers and sisters, I've had a wet dream. Um, and I have a wound. And it's cold. What do I do in this situation? I can't use the water. You know, uh, and this is major impurity happened to him. So he's saying, Ghusl. They said to him, um, We have no rukhsa for you. We don't have any answer for you. There's no way around this, brother. You have to, you have to do the ghusl. Uh, he went back, ta'ala anhu, and he did ghusl. And then he died. He died from the ghusl. The Prophet ﷺ was informed of what these men said. The Prophet ﷺ, he said, قَتَلُوهُ They killed him. قَتَلَهُمُ Allah. May Allah kill them. أَلَا سَأَلُوا Why did they not ask? إِذْ لَمْ يَعْلَمُوا When they didn't know. فَإِنَّمَا شِفَاءُ السُّؤَالِ The cure of ignorance is to ask. So the Prophet ﷺ, he said, Qataluhu, these people kill this man. Allah, may Allah kill them. And to see Nabi Muhammad say that shows you how serious it is 
not to give fatwa and answer matters in the religion when you have no knowledge. Hani, don't give an answer in the religion. Give a verdict. Say this is halal or haram. Or even this is allowed. Or even say this is, this is wrong. To say this is wrong. Or to say this is right. In a religious issue. Very dangerous when you have no knowledge. And your knowledge is very little. What you're doing is you're speaking on behalf of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. ولذلك ابن القيم he authored a book where he called it إعلام الموقعين عن رب العالمين he called it the people the scholars who signed on behalf of Allah سبحانه وتعالى الموقعين ما معنى موقع موقع is a person who does توقيع you know when you get given an application there's a section where they say to you توقيع sign and these people are signing on behalf of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. You're speaking on behalf of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Walidarika, the great scholars and the great imams, they used to fear the concept of speaking about the religion with no knowledge. Because they knew what Allah says in the Quran. Don't speak about Allah's religion without no knowledge and say this is halal and this is haram. And we are at a time, subhanAllah, when that has become uh, widespread. That has become widespread. And in that hadith, the benefit that we also take from it is that the Prophet referred to ignorance as a illness. He said the cure of ignorance is asking. And it's an illness, it's a marad. So the person who's ignorant is actually sick. An ignorant person is a sick person. He's actually ill. He's ill. He just doesn't realize how ill he is. The only person who sees this ill person is the, is the alim or the person of knowledge. So the second reason is al-marad. So this man, when he got wounded, he was allowed to do tayammum. He didn't have to do ghusl. These sahabas, they gave him a wrong verdict. One of the statements that one of my shuyukhs once said that really touched me was, he said that these sahabas, they gave a fatwa that led in the death of this other companion. He said, how many of us have also given fatwa in issues that have killed either people's hearts and made them go astray from the religion, we've killed their hearts, or we gave a fatwa that actually did lead to people fighting. And it's very important. Amrun Khatir. It's a very dangerous issue. Giving fatwa with no knowledge. In the books of Usul al-Fiqh, you tend to find discussions of these issues. Yani, for example, and I'm not going to go into it too much, like if you look at the Qutb al-Fiqh, and even Qutb al-Usul, especially when they, the Mabahith, the chapters of Mujtahid, and the Muqallid, and the Shurut al-Mujtahid, and etc. The scholars, they mention what is known as an alim gave a fatwa. And a scholar gave a fatwa, he gave a verdict. When he gave that verdict, that verdict he gave, or that fatwa he gave, was executed by a group of people. And he gave a fatwa on something, and then that fatwa got taken, and someone lost their life because of that fatwa. Years went by, that alim came back from that view. He came back from that stance that he held. And he no longer believes that ruling anymore. After long research and studying and more looking into the issue, his view has changed. Is he responsible for the blood of that person? Is he responsible for it? Keeping in mind, he was a scholar. He was entitled to give that verdict. He was a bona fide scholar. He had the aliyah, the conditions of ijtihad. They were there for him. He gave the fatwa 
it got taken and it got executed by a system, for example. He gave the fatwa to the, the judiciary system. For Islamic, Islamic country, he gave the fatwa and the fatwa was then used by a judge and this person was killed because of it. Years went by, he held a different view in this issue and he changed his opinion. Is he liable for that blood? The scholars, they discuss this issue and they talk about it. And my, question, my point is, is specific. I'm saying that he is not the one who executed it. If he executes it, he killed someone, that's another discussion. Like we're talking about his fatwa was used and now he's come back from that fatwa. Um, the third reason why uh, or how you're allowed to use is it is the need that a person has And the third one is the ihtiyaj. There is a need for the water by the person. The person has the water. The water is not absent. They've actually got the water. But uh, he needs that water to drink it. He needs that water for drinking. And it's only enough for him to drink it on the way. Later what, happen, what will happen is that if he drinks the water... And so if he uses the water as wudu, he won't have something to drink and he might die from it. Or his animals need it. He's got goats, he's got sheep. That's why the author said, Haywanin muhtaramin. It's like a it's a sacred. Mm -hmm. Or it's a worthy animal. Haywan, which is worthy, like a camel. Goats, haiwan which is worthy. And that haiwan is in a good state. And it's not a haiwan that's about to die anyways. He fears for his goat to die. Or he fears that the, the one horse he has, that's going to die if he doesn't give it water. Or his sheep, they might die if he doesn't give it water. And he knows he's going to be on the road. Or for himself. So he does have the water. The water is not absent. What is he allowed to do in this situation? They say that what is allowed for him is um, to do tayammum and to use that water for drinking. That is, that is allowed. And the evidence for that is the, uh, the evidence for necessity. Yani the evidences that you use for necessity applies here. And not killing yourself. Those type of verses is what it will be used here. And the evidence is for necessity. It will be applied here. Um, so here we'll stop inshallah ta'ala. Today what we took is, we studied the hadith that is divided into two. The first one is the hadith in terms of what is required from you, what you must do and what is needed from you. It's either wudu or ghusl. The wudu becomes um, minor 
and ghusl becomes major. So then from that perspective, it only becomes two. If you look at what is necessitates, what is required from you, it only is either major or minor. You either have to do wudu or ghusl. If it's wudu, it's asghar. If it's ghusl, it's akbar. But what is prohibited from you when we look at that, they kind of divide into three. And what are they? Minor, which is that which you can't do, and we mentioned it's four only, which is minor. The author mentioned four. And then there's awsat, which is when you're in a state of janabah, right? When you're in a state of janabah, there are also specific things that you can't do. Um, and then there's the major, which is hayd, extra things that you can't do. Those are the three categories, those are the two types of categorization of the hadith that the author here mentioned and that the Shafi'iyah mentioned in their works and their books. Here, inshallah ta'ala, I'm going to take some of your questions. Uh, anything which I have said that was wrong or incorrect is from me, a shaytan, and Allah and His Messenger are free from it. Subhanakallah, wa bihamdik, ashadu an la ilaha illallah, astaghfiruka wa atubu ilayh.